for the 11th time. This is 99th episode. Because ice is way more I would argue that was a pretty picture of yes, your apocalypse well, toy. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, um, I want to wrap up some loose ends today because one thing I've noticed in this podcast is, uh, especially on my side, is that I mentioned that I started reading something and that I'm maybe halfway through it and I give my thoughts on it and then I finish reading it and I move on to something else. But once I've done that, I only talk about the something else. I never actually talk about the things I finished reading. So this is going to be a quick, massive, loose end wrap up for me. And for my part, I just don't care about wrapping up my loose ends. So... (laughs) I think I think I probably have as many loose ends as you do. I just um, I can't even remember what they are for the most part. Although one of them actually, uh, I would call more of my loose end than your loose end. That's talking about Sandman. Um, mm-hmm. However, I think that it would be appropriate since we were just talking about the apocalypse that you live in to start there. Yeah. So Age of Apocalypse. Back in the early days of this podcast, back uh, many many weeks ago. I was reading Age of Apocalypse, and I was talking about it, and I was liking it, but I've since finished it, and I really loved it, Paul. I think this is, like, for me, a top X-Men story. Like, I would put it in my, easily my top five favorite X-Men stories, maybe even higher right now. And I might just be riding that Age of Apocalypse high, but... Man, I really, really dug this thing. It's a really good story, and it's still—it's been a long time since I've read it. But um, I had purchased uh, tr- uh, like a three trade paperback collection of the the whole event, and um, I gave them to my cousin's son for his birthday years ago because I, I got them like on you know clearance at Books a Million or whatever. Um, and then I was like, well, you know what? He'll enjoy these. So I gave them to him. And I was over there uh, probably like a month ago now for something. And I asked if I could borrow them because I just want to look through them. So I just kind of – I didn't reread them. Realistically, I'm not going to reread them. That's a heck of a lot of reading time invested in that. Yeah, it is. Um, but just kind of flipping through it again a little bit. Um, I might – I mean there's got to be like a more concise read-through of that like without having to read everything. And that might be something – I mean eventually I'm going to get there with, uh, with reading Uncanny X-Men I suppose. So – That'll probably be the mm-hmm. way I, I experience it again is just reading the you know the core Uncanny X Men title and not spreading out. But um, it, I mean, it's been a long time since I've read it, and like I still have that fond feeling for it. Like one thing we've talked about uh, off the podcast some is that they have uh, Marvel Legends has the Age of Apocalypse toys is like one of their series is out right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is tempting, man, especially because you get all those pieces and you build. What is it that you build? It's something ridiculous, like a Modoc. Oh, it's Sugar like Man. That. Sugar Man, okay. Sugar yeah. Man, yeah. Heck yeah. I, I want some. I want to spend like, what, 120 bucks to have a Sugar Man? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not, eh? <laughs> yeah. I think X-Men stories, they seem to have, there's like two axes to them. There is the 
hated and feared slash mutants are a metaphor for whatever minority or oppressed people you want to uh, look at. And that's like the God loves, man kills types of stories, stuff like that. Or uh, X-Men versus Sentinels is very much along those lines. And the other axis is this X-Men never giving up and always continuing to fight despite overwhelming odds. And that's like the uh, stuff like Inferno or Mutant Massacre or Dark Phoenix Saga is a lot of stuff like that where it's it's there's no way we can win but we have to fight anyway type of x-men stories and i think age of apocalypse is kind of the extension of the first of the mutant metaphor taken to it's kind of flipped and taken to an extreme but then mainly it's really a the x-men have their backs up against the wall and are gonna have one giant last fight to try to succeed despite overwhelming odds and it just really really works for me i think it helps that it's contained and they can actually end the story it doesn't have to lead into anything because the universe it takes place in is like literally ceasing to exist at the end of the story so I think that that helps to make it feel much more complete as a story. And uh, yeah, really, really loved it. Age of Apocalypse is now officially one of my favorite X-Men stories. It's fun because they got to play with um, character design also. So you got, and you just like you said, the fact that it's going to be capped off and it it doesn't necessarily matter to anything else um, allows them to tell a really fun story, allows them to play with character design. So you get, you know, such great creations that really, like, show the evilness of these characters that you think of as good. Like, uh, the Beast is slightly gray instead of blue. That's mm-hmm. just intimidating stuff right there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that, um, oh, like, yeah. Wolf- Wolverine, doesn't he, um, isn't one of his hands, like, a... a Chopped part- off. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. got that. I mean, how do you make Wolverine more badass? Uh, have him missing a limb. And um, a face tattoo. Oh, everyone's got face tattoos. Yeah, it's I mean, like the world of face tattoos. Where do you think Mike Tyson got it from? Or maybe I vice know, versa. I, I don't really know the time frame of these things related <laughs> to each other. That <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. I, 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 all I'm saying is, uh, you know, it, it, we didn't see Mike Tyson in Age of Apocalypse, but we didn't specifically say that he wasn't there. You, you know so, he's there. You know he's in the yeah. background there. That was his, mm. uh, his start in other media. He went from there to uh, to The Hangover, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Got books and movies covered already. Yep. Okay. All right. So I, that's kind of all I wanted to say about Age of Apocalypse. It is good X-Men. As you're just making me want to read it. it I, what I'm going to do, I'm going to stick to this, is that I'm not going to try to read it until I get there in Uncanny X-Men. Because I've also... I still haven't picked back up on reading Uncanny X-Men, although I finally did um, shuffle my collection a little bit, and I got, um, you know how they have those, like, BCW, uh, like, comic folio boxes? Mm-hmm. Um, so you can carry, like, a small amount of comics. So I have that loaded up with, like, the next batch to read. So at least when I'm ready to read, I'll be able to grab that, and I have, there's, I don't know, like, 15 issues in there, maybe something like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I'll, I'll get there when I get there, and I'll read the uncanny titles and see if that uh, inspires me to read more, then maybe I'll branch out and read the whole story again, and then we can 
spend another like five episodes talking about it. Cool. Yeah, I think you could <laughs> probably just try reading the Astonishing X-Men and Amazing X-Men titles. Those seem to very much be the um, the core of the story told in those issues is in those ones. So that I think would be the place to start. And then you can just kind of branch out from there. If you want some Summers Brothers nonsense, add the Factor X. If you want the uh, Wolverine, well, not Wolverine, he's Weapon X. You, you get the Weapon X title, and then you can kind of kind of pick and choose what you want to add from there. I yeah, think. It could be an interesting way to do it, too, like read like individual offshoots like just concisely together. Um, mm-hmm. Although I'm, I'm, I'm never compelled to read the Summer Brothers. Uh, they're like the most boring We've, and we've even had an episode where we talked about how they're not as boring as I think they are. And I'm still like, but, but you're still like, no, but actually, uh, I mean, like <laughs> I could read them or I could read somebody excited because I also I remember how they were in that book because they're just like, all right, we we're, we're following you, evil boss, instead of following the good boss. You know, I don't know. Yeah, there was some uh, decent summer's gray nonsense going on towards the end of it, though. That was yeah. good. Yeah. I. Oh. Where, I'm, where I left off in Uncanny is still the part where uh, uh, Alex Summers is just, like, being a crybaby about all the, the women that he's had bad relationships with, basically, and how it's all somebody else's fault that nothing has worked out. Well, he has had some bad luck in that regards, right? He's had Lorna Dane, who turned into Malice, and then... For some reason, he started hooking up with uh, Madeline Pryor during Inferno, which she went bonkers yep. <laughs> and insane. That was so, a crazy story. I mean, she was the, uh, a clone of Jean Grey, right? Yes. Yeah, that's pretty uh, specifically designed to be evil and to destroy the, the X Men. Um, or, I mean, sort of like that's well, tangential I, I effect, think, at least. But yeah, that, I think that that was more tangential. It's it's more like. So, Mr. Sinister wants to breed Cyclops and Jean Grey. Like, that's his goal, is to create the ultimate mutant. And I think his his Grandmaster plan, his reason to do this, is as a weapon against Apocalypse. And even though he's often teamed up with Apocalypse, he's actually kind of out for himself. And that's really what this is all about. And so, Cable is supposed to be that. But Cable was um, taken over by the techno-organic virus, and most of his mutant ability has to go into just keeping that at bay and keeping it from taking over his, um, like, just taking over his his entire body. And so, basically, that plan was scrapped and, and didn't quite work. But he started cloning Jean Grey just as a backup plan in case she ever died, basically, <laughs> which is kind of nuts. But and, and that's what Madeline Pryor was, is basically his backup plan where, well, if if I can't get Scott to have a kid with Jean Grey, then I'll get him to have a kid with the clone of Jean Grey. And hope that'll be good enough. It's so weird. It's so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but, right, I mean... It's, that that, it's that just, clarified it all quite well. I, I love how convoluted that whole story is because you could explain it and just be like, I'm more confused now with the explanation than I was when I just was in the dark. <laughs> That's like that, many that things in X-Men. <laughs> Although I yeah. haven't gotten very far on cable stuff yet, of course, because, uh, I mean, like, he's a baby right now where I'm at. But 
Ah, uh, yeah. That's about it. You know, Cable is one of those where he he's now one of my favorite X-Men characters. And a lot of it has to do with what happens to him later in the 90s. Because in the X-Men, you're about to get to the era of like the quote-unquote 90s with Jim Lee, Rob Leefield, all that stuff. And that is, I think, what a lot of people remember about the 90s. But that's actually pretty short-lived. The New Mutants and then into X-Force, uh, Rob Leefield was off of that within like a year or so. And once he actually leaves, X-Force becomes a really good title because they get some people with a little more, uh, uh, I guess I, I would just say a different take on writing, less just gritty action all the time and more actual character development and stories and stuff. And what they do with Cable becomes really, really interesting. I really like it. And to the point now that, you know, I never would have thought this before I started rereading all of the kind of later 90s stuff, the stuff that comes after the big uh, Rob Layfield, Jim Lee moment in it. And now that I have, yeah, Cable's up there with, like, you know, my favorite X-Men. Nice. I look forward yeah. to getting to it then. It, that's yeah. one thing that's been really cool about reading from, you know, starting with uh, Giant Size in 94 on is uh, seeing different characters develop. There's a lot more characters that I greatly appreciate that I didn't before. Um, and it's hard. To, I mean, now there are so many that I can't really say, like, all these characters are now some of my favorites. Like, I guess, like, in reality, I have a lot of favorite characters in the X-Men universe, which is why I like the X-Men universe, is there's so many great characters. So, but they wouldn't be, like, my favorite, because you're not going to expand that to, like, 20, right? But uh-huh. um, uh, Rogue... Uh, and Rogue, like, obviously, she's one that I was exposed to before because my first exposure to the X-Men was the 90s cartoon. She was prevalent there. But going back to the beginning of Rogue where she was bad uh, and then having her character, de- like, her character at first, there wasn't much depth to it. And it, you know, she just, she wasn't really that interesting uh, even when she joined the X-Men, even though she was bad and they didn't trust her. Um, I think it was after you got a little bit past the mistrust phase where they still don't completely trust her even where I'm at now, or at least some of them don't. But as you developed into that and she kept on proving herself and proving herself and you saw the ones that are more likely to um, to take that proof and not just hold on to biases like Wolverine developing a, you know, a fondness with her. And like her and Wolverine doing missions together because they were the two that were you know, look, we, we need to execute what we need to execute and do it. And they weren't, they wouldn't, you know, get stopped up by stuff. Uh, like, I think it was Genosha was one of the ones where they, they went off together uh, to try to rescue somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, so like her, I'm just getting into Jubilees. Like, she hasn't really developed yet at all, but I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Kitty Pride's one of my favorite characters. I love her and Lockheed. Um, one of the issues that I really wanted to get when I was starting to, um, like, really collect uh was the first appearance of Lockheed I loved that issue I thought it was a great story and I really like Lockheed um uh Dazzler like I didn't I didn't think anything about Dazzler before reading through her development and once again at first she was just it's just the surface like look she's flashy like literally that's her power yeah but but, you know that that was all her character was at first like let's tap into disco you know 
So, but uh, yeah. yeah, just like as it goes, I keep on. There's more and more characters that I love. Going back kind of to the beginning of what I've read, uh, I really love Wolverine for his character development. You know, he's a character that many people have gotten to the point of disliking because of it being oversaturated. But to me, like, if you really tap into what's good about a character, the way you don't get it oversaturated to where you don't like it anymore is don't do everything. Don't try. Like, I'm not going to try to read everything ever put out for Wolverine, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, that would would make it tedious to read to read i mean that's how i feel about batman like I, I don't really care about reading batman anymore at all because i read so much batman at first and there's like nothing else interesting to me but yeah so anyways i could ramble on for a while but like wolverine sure. storm is a big one like wolverine storm and nightcrawler are kind of like my big three still i think what's really cool about x-men is that you can't really go wrong in terms of you know you can name any characters as your favorites and you could say, yeah, I could see that. You know, if somebody were to say to me, like, yeah, uh, Colossus and Dazzler and Forge are my favorite from that era, I could be like, okay, I mean, not my favorites, but, you know, I can see it. There's really interesting stuff that happens with them. Yeah, there's stuff you can relate to with any of them. Yeah. So I, I think that just yeah, is a testament to how good Chris Claremont was at, taking the X-Men beyond the bounds of just being a pure heroes versus villains book and really being more of a, a soap opera about um, actual characters. Yeah, and, the the yeah. relatability of what, what they're going through or their character traits. or I mean, that's really what makes it special. Um, and then, you know, the action is just what makes it fun. Yeah. All right, All let's right. Uh, move away from X-Men. We're done with X-Men just, forever now. All right, let's yes, go. Yes, forever for this episode. <laughs> and uh, I want to also talk about mind management. I wrapped that up. We had a whole episode talking about mind management, but I was only about halfway through it. Now that I'm done with it, yeah, great. It, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's so and, good. Like, I love... Um, it was so hard to talk about it last time because you were halfway through and because I wasn't reading it with you. Mm-hmm. I didn't know for sure where you were at and what was going on. Um, and it's been a while since I've read it, too, so it's not like I remember all the details perfectly. But I just – I love that you get – as you keep going, you're like, okay, I got a beat on this now. And then you get to something you're like, nope, I don't. Uh, everything yeah. I thought is now not the way I thought it was. But it also wasn't um, – like you can read stories that are like that, but it's – feels very i don't know gimmicky might be the right word for it where yeah everything is now different but it's because they they kind of broke the rules you know it's like it's really easy to make everything different when it's like they they build you up to think this one character is the murderer and then everything is is pointing in that direction and they go like no but he's not because of this and it just flies in the face of everything that you've learned rather than actually fitting in with it my yeah. management's not that at all. Like it's like, oh, holy crap! This is right in line with everything, and it literally changes everything in a different direction. Yeah, but also I feel like it. By the end, it all made sense. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I really appreciated about it. Is the end really pulled it all together and showed kind of what the whole book had been doing the whole time, <clears throat> and that you you realize that it's it's not just a story it's much more like a story from a particular character's perspective and what they're trying to accomplish and what they're doing and how it's uh 
at odds with what is in the rest of the book. And it just, it really worked well. It was a very, very good wrap up. Yeah, it's, that is just such a nice little package. It's, it's long enough that it's substantial. It's not so long that it's prohibitive. It's so creative because it's like, it's one creator essentially doing everything. Uh, Mm -hmm. It just like, it has everything you can want when you're like, I just want this thing to be like really good and concise and, it just is so good. It's just so yeah. good. Speaking of things that are like that, and this is one that in, I think it was was our last episode, we were giving our things we want to read list, our, our to read list. I don't remember if it was last week or the week before. It, it, it was one of the last two weeks. That's all I can yeah. remember. And then I, I proceeded to not read anything that I put on that list. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I was a, a, a good <laughs> reader and I did. I also read Fear Agents. And I just wrapped it up yesterday. And maybe we can do a, a longer episode on Fear Agent. But I, my goodness, wow. I, Isn't it just so good? It is. But I, what, what I realized about it is as I was reading it, I wasn't sure. Like a lot of stuff seemed like it didn't quite make sense to me. Like things would happen. I'm like, wait, what's going on? Huh? Like I'm. I'm a little unclear about what's what just happened or or why this is happening now. And some of it is that a lot of times when I read comics, it's right before bed and I'm already tired. So I'm not always like the most alert with my reading at the time. And so sometimes I just chalk it up to that. But I think with Fear Agent, the end really helps explain everything that was going on and why some things kind of seemed like they were a little out of the blue or disjointed at times. And my goodness, if if there had to be a dictionary entry for sticking the landing, I think that Fear Agent probably is a solid contender to be the book that exemplifies that. Like, I was just blown away by the ending. It, man, it, it like it moved me to tears and <laughs> like how many times has a comic actually done that it's so rare because it's it's like both a happy ending and not a happy ending at the same time and it's just so complex but also wraps up the whole story and really shows that everything in the story was leading to that ending even if you didn't know it at the time uh, man i it just it just, man, just really knocked my socks off. I loved it. My goodness. Yeah, I think I that's what I, was. I, I'm, I'm going to need to read it again uh, so we could do a, a good thorough episode on it because uh, I've read that twice. Um, and I, I've talked about this before, but the first time I read it, I read the second half of the series first, and then I read the first half of the series after mm-hmm. uh, because I enjoyed reading the second. Somebody had sent me like the last couple of trades of it. Um, so I read it in reverse order. So it also was sort of confusing, but also, like, I knew where the end was heading, so I think that it, it seemed, like, a little more put together. But the second time I read it was a gap after that. I, I read it, you know, from beginning to the end, and it definitely felt, um, like, in the middle, like it lost its way. And I know one factor with it that I don't completely know the details, um, but that series started off with Image and then ended up being finished on Dark Horse, and then they must have eventually made a deal for the the publishing rights to all go to Image, so it could be published, you know, cohesively. 
I don't know if it's like, you know, Remender had to wait till Dark Horse's rights on it ran out, so that way he could take it all to one place, because I assume the whole thing is creator-owned, would be my guess. Yeah, I'm not sure. What's interesting is my my big omnibus editions are published by Dark Horse. Okay, so you have those ones. Yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so it's been it's been published again since then, um, and they even I forget what they call it, but they call it like the complete final. I don't know, like they they add some extra words in there that's like, no, really, this is it now. <laughs> oh, okay, um, <laughs> we yeah, mean it this time, guys. It's, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. It's um, published by Image is like this last printing of it that they've done. So um, there's there's got to be a little bit of interesting story in there, but I think it like you can see somewhat when you're reading it that there is a sort of a a disjointedness in the middle like it almost feels like the the seri- like it was killed and then it got new life and when it got new life uh remender didn't start writing it like it was uh, a continuation of an ongoing story it's more like he wrote it like it was the beginning of a new story you know if that makes mm-hmm. sense um that that's what it felt like to me the 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 second time i read through it where i did it like from beginning to the end yeah, I can kind of see that now in, in retrospect because I did feel I feel like it'll make more sense again the second time through knowing where it's all leading and how it, these different pieces that don't seem quite connected all actually connect up. Yeah, and I don't remember where it's leading, so I'll enjoy it all over again. <laughs> all right. Oh man, it's it's leading somewhere good, Paul. It's yeah. leading somewhere good. That's the part I remember. I'm just like that was good. I could do that again. Um, yeah, I'd, I, I've really enjoyed that series. I mean, for me to have read something twice and want to read it a third time already says a lot for me. Cause usually I'm like once I'm like, I'm good. So one thing I, uh, I asked you earlier in the week, um, which of the four beginning, uh, valiant titles I should give a shot to read. And <laughs> you suggested Harbinger and oh, I yeah. started reading that. I was like, I, I just still don't really feel like reading valiant again. And it's been a long time since I've read this stuff too. But it's like I, I know the story, like I'm reading it, and all I'm seeing is like this art's not as good as I remember, and uh, this story, I feel like Harbinger uh, banks more than the other titles on people reading it because they read the old series, so they're grounded in some sense of the history of it. Hmm. Because it feels like that first issue is flying through stuff fairly quickly and I like I know you want to get on to the meat of the story but just the way that it's done didn't like my honest assessment halfway through the first issue so I, I actually just finished only the first issue and so when I texted you I was like in the middle of the first issue and there's a good chance if I picked up just that issue I might have got halfway through and been like eh, this isn't doing it for me because they they're moving so quickly on it, but also Peter is um, a real dumbass, and yep. <laughs> not in a oh, he's a dumbass kid kind of way, but more in a this really feels forced kind of way. Because he's hmm. very quickly, uh, I mean, he goes up to this girl Chris that uh, he knew. Like we know, he went back home. Like he, he went back to where he lived, and then like suddenly he he sees a girl out the window. He goes out and talks to her. He's creepy because he's uh, like kind of forcing the issue, and he says, "I love you. I've been in the hospital, and you're the only thing." That, uh, there's, I feel like you can't hit those points without any kind of setup, and that's exactly what they did. 
And that's what made me be like, I don't really like how this is being done. And it reminded me of uh, some other indie books uh, that I've read that just feel like they assumed too much. Um, I'm thinking of some uh, some stuff from Aftershock, which Aftershock is pretty pretty good. But I've never like they're not really my cup of tea. But some of the books I've read, they just felt that way to me. Like, um, you can't just kind of ignore building the story because you're a, a new publisher and you just want to, like, get to the meat of it. That's why I'm glad I started with Archer and Armstrong and Bloodshot because Bloodshot was just an action book. It was action immediately, you know, like, you didn't have to do that. Archer and Armstrong, the way they tell their story, it could be entertaining really quickly without building to it. Harbinger, I completely understand because obviously I've read it all before, um, that it's a story that needs to build up to it, but they probably couldn't afford the time to not try to get to the the engaging things, the action really quickly. So I can uh, I can understand why they had to do it, but at the same time, um, the first half of that issue definitely didn't win me over. Started getting a little more interesting by the second half of the issue, and I know by the time you get to the end of that first arc, it's you know it draws you in. Yeah, I remember the end of the first arc, the fifth issue of Harbinger. I read it on my lunch break, right when we got the uh, review copies sent out. And it just, I I, I don't know, it, it, I loved it so much. It seemed it, like it was shocking, but not shocking at the same time. And it made sense that it was inevitable, but I was also completely surprised by it. And I was just, man, really, really thrown. That was, a, I think, an exciting time for yeah. me uh, reading Valiant. I was, I was so on board with that and really, really into it and, lo- and loved it. So I think Carpenter... Yeah, I could see the first issue feels a little weird. It's a little like, what? And here's this crazy kid, and he's just a druggie, and what's he doing? Like, and now the cops are here. What? This is strange. But I feel like it ends up by the end of that first arc, really taking off like a rocket. Yeah, for me. did and I like I don't even really remember how the arc ends. Like, I'm actually now that you're talking about it more, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to continuing to read it. It, there's a lot more to the concept than the other Valiant launch titles. The other ones were kind of a lot more like you could just look at the concept and understand it. Like, I mean, Bloodshot, he's, you know, it's like it's Terminator. Death Machine. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, like re- really easy. He, you know, he can't get killed and he likes to kill things. Okay. Archer and Armstrong. Okay. It's a buddy comedy with weirdness. And, you know, it's... um I loved that. I loved Fred Van Lente's Archer and Armstrong. And I forget who did the art on oh, it off too. the top of my head, but, like, the art was really good in it. Um, uh, Clayton Henry. Clayton Henry, yeah. Carney yeah. Evans in in um, Harbinger, not as good as I remember. Yeah, his art is uh, kind of strange. Yeah, I mean, it's not bad by any means, but one, it feels very done on a computer. Like, uh, if that makes sense. Like, it feels like maybe... I don't know. Like, it feels like maybe computer effects were used a little bit too much on it or something, but, like, it really feels done on a computer. Um, but two, like, all the characters' faces look like they're trying to make their mouth a butthole. Like, I don't know. Like, they're... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's trying a little too hard to show facial movement. So everybody's doing that, like, I'm talking, so my mouth is, like, 
but every t- every time somebody's talking, their mouth is like shaped like a butthole. I don't know, like. Uh, <laughs> All right. Yeah, I think you see that sometimes with other artists um, when they're. I don't, I don't know if it's when they're like they're they're newer at it or what, but like they're always trying to show facial movement and they're trying too hard. So you don't just get the like, you know, I mean, you've probably read like uh, I'm thinking of like Avengers or something like that where you read it and like they're, they're all talking, but their faces are always just like resting face. And they're like uh-huh. trying not to do that, trying to be more dynamic than that. But I think there's also too dynamic. Um, you watch Futurama? Yeah, I, I it's been a long time. I think I watched the first maybe three or four seasons of it. All right. So you need to watch the whole show obsessively and repeatedly like a, like a normal person does. But uh, ah, my mistake. <laughs> after all these years, I now think Futurama is the best of the um, the made-for-older audiences cartoon comedies. Hmm. Sim- interesting. Simpsons has lost it for me. I've tried rewatching The Simpsons, and it's tedious as hell. Uh, South Park never did it for me. It's way too over the top. Rewatching Family Guy, my wife has been uh, watching it, and like I actually do not enjoy watching Family Guy now. There's sometimes I enjoy it, but like on the whole, I don't enjoy it. Uh, Futurama, though, we've rewatched that probably four or five times uh, over the years. Yeah, it's it's really enjoyable. I've I I didn't stop watching it for any like because I didn't like it. I think I watched it when there were only four seasons. Yeah, that and existed. Then it got and, killed, and they did like yeah. the, uh, the movie length ones, and it came back a little bit. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. um, it, it's a good binger. It's a good easy one to watch, and it's just always enjoyable. But anyway, so um, my point with that: Do you remember the episode when uh, Zoidberg goes to Hollywood to meet his uncle, who's the the big time, you know, black and white silent film star? No. Okay. No, it's, I don't remember that. It's a it's <laughs> a good all. one, but it's uh what's hilarious about it is um so his his uncle was a star in silent films and he wants to be, you know, he's like an old man, old old lobster, uh and he wants to be uh a famous actor again, so he wants to do talkies. But he uh he's directing this film and uh, but he keeps on telling everybody to emote more because like in the black and white movies where there's no sound, there's no voice. Oh, yeah. So it was all emoting. Yeah. So he's like mm-hmm. emote more. So like everybody's acting like normal actors would when he yells at them all to emote more. And then they're all being like ridiculous, like way over the top, trying to like just exaggerate the fact that they're even there. That's that's what I relate to when I see these uh, facial characterizations where it's like, I'm trying so hard to make your face look like it's doing something when I'm drawing this picture that it looks like it's, you know, over-emoting. Uh, okay, I see. Yeah. All right. It all comes it full circle. Really, that was just an excuse to talk about Family Guy. We're done now for today. So I would say uh, along the lines of best animated for adults show, have you seen BoJack Horseman? I hated that show. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay, that is my favorite animated for adults show ever. Yeah, I mean that that's going. I I think the thing is for me, like for animated shows, like I don't want to jump that far adult. I think that one is like jumping further adult. You know, like yeah, I want it to be like mature subject matter, but not just a bunch of you know f words and grossness. So yeah, I think it, there there's a lot more to it than that. Probably. I didn't watch that much of it. I, we tried like an episode or two, and I was like, no, nope, not for me. Oh man, it is so much for me. I might give I it another really try. It. Uh, there are often times like that where it's like it's just not the right time to try something, um, and then you go back. You know, another really good one actually, Bob's Burgers. 
I've never I've never watched that one. Oh, so good. Yeah. Hey, let's uh <laughs> move on to the meat of this episode, huh? <laughs> so a couple weeks ago, speaking of you going back to reread things and how rare it happens, we had a rare event happen where you said, Hey, I want to read Sandman again. Do you want to read Sandman again? And I think I said, I always want to read Sandman again. So that is what we began doing, is reading Sandman again. And we're going to talk about the first volume, Preludes and Nocturnes, the first eight issues. And I want to ask you, like, about the first time you read Sandman. Like, when did Sandman, how did you discover it? So Sandman came in for me in the... There's been three phases to me reading comics. The first phase, I was like just out of high school. I got on a big Kevin Smith kick. And he it was right when he started writing Green Arrow uh, with Phil Hester doing the art. And those covers were fantastic, by the way. So I read his Green Arrow. I read his Daredevil. um, A little bit of other stuff. Then I got tired of Kevin Smith altogether. And I sold all my comics and I was done. And then um, a while later, so that was that was uh, like right out of high school, basically before I met my wife or anything. Jumped a little bit later. I had met my wife. Uh, my wife is an avid reader, uh, as am I. Um, she's a natural speed reader, so she just flies through books like ridiculous, which I'm jealous of. Um, and uh, like we were reading like lots of heavy literature, like we. Um, we found a list of uh, like uh, Time Magazine's top 100 novels of the t- 20th century, and like that's what we were choosing books to read from, pretty much. So, I mean, I oh, was wow, reading. Yeah. This was during the era where I was reading books like um, The Brothers Karamazov and Ulysses, and like uh, I always say, like if you could read Ulysses, you can read anything. And I know there are some other books that are very challenging to read, but Ulysses is. Um, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody because I, I wouldn't say that I enjoyed reading it, but I did it. <laughs> is it um, similar to other James Joyce? Cause I've read portrait of the artist as a young man. Um, I think I've read that twice. I think that it, I think his other stuff is much more readable. I think this one is a big play in, uh, Ulysses is a big play with form. Um, that's a big, a big aspect of it actually is that the writing styles are, he changes the writing styles to like mimic different writing styles throughout the book. Um, mm, it just interesting. real, it, it's been a long time, but really difficult read. And like, that's what I've basically heard everybody say about it. But I kind of got to the end of the book, like, okay, there, that's done. Not like, okay, now let me reflect on that. But like, okay, done. I could, like, I could say I did it. I'm done with it. You know, <laughs> um, Whereas I might reread The Brothers Karamazov, I don't really ever intend to reread Ulysses, even though they're both like super long, thousand plus page books. I, I think Ulysses is that long. Ulysses is really long. It feels longer than it is probably. Anyways, that's a tangent. So eventually, one of the books on this list was Watchmen. And I was like, I don't want to read comics. I was the one saying specifically, I don't want to read comics. And we were, like, getting deeper and deeper into this list, you know, getting the stuff we really wanted to read, kind of getting down to the other stuff. And finally, my wife is like, hey, we should read this. So I'm like, okay. So we go to Borders, when that still existed, and we buy Watchmen. And I read Watchmen. And one of the things I love about this is the number one thing I hear about Watchmen when I say that it's the first thing I read that got me into comics, which is essentially true. I know I dabbled in comics a little bit before it, but... Um, is people saying that that's the last thing they would ever recommend somebody read 
that wanted to try comics. I'm like, well, got me into it. Like you. Well, I think though, coming from it from a literature, bent, exactly. I think it makes a little more sense. Yeah, yeah. I needed something that was that was meatier, deeper, more meaningful, heartier, um, and it, it served that purpose for me. So I think you know, a lot of people when they want to get somebody into something, they just want you to dump feet first right into whatever they love. And that is not the way to really get anybody into um, to anything to do that just blindly. Like you got to think about where the other person is coming from, what they enjoy, and you know we were just talking about Valiant. Valiant fans were a great example of this during the uh, the heyday of the excitement of the relaunch. If you asked a Valiant fan what you should read, their only answer was everything. Yeah, and that's the worst <laughs> answer. Yes, you love everything, but guess what? I'm not going to buy everything and read it. Um, yeah. But anyway, so uh, I, I read Watchmen. I enjoyed it. And I thought, okay, I want to read more comics, but I don't know what I want to read because I do not want to read superheroes. Like, I did not want to read superhero stuff at all. And the only reason I read Sandman is I remembered that uh, years ago, when I was still in high school, before I dabbled at all in comics, a friend of mine uh, was picking up Sandman. And so I was like, okay, this is, it's not a superhero comic, it's something different. And I started getting them. And this is like at the perfect time of my life to, to dive into something too, because like I was younger, I didn't have a kid, so like I had time. Um, oh my God, I had so much time. You don't realize it until you yeah, lose I it. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> like I could literally like read from the moment I got up to the moment I went to bed and I had the energy to do it, whereas like nowadays I don't. Um, mm-hmm. And. Like I, I didn't have any of the like the health problems I've gone through where it's like still I eat the wrong thing I cannot focus enough to read because it screws up my my focus really badly you know like so I mean there are just so many factors that now can be prohibitive to reading something that then like nothing was a problem and so I just I dove into Sandman and I mean at that time I believe yeah the whole series was out like everything was available so I was reading yeah. you know getting one trade after another after another uh, and there's. 12 trades total, uh, 10 trades, I believe, in, like, the proper storyline, and then two trades that were kind of like uh, detour stories. Like, I don't know what you call them, but um, I believe like that's correct. There's, like, the Death miniseries. Uh, is it stuff like that you're talking about? And then there's the, like, Dream Hunters, which is more of, like, a written work with um, illustrations to accompany it. I don't know exactly. Definitely, I'm not, definitely okay. not talking about death. But there were a couple that weren't part of the bigger story. They were just like their own little story. Um, yeah, and sure. It's been a long time since I've read them, so I don't really remember what they are or where they lie. But uh, I I know that I'm somewhat confused in it because I was looking up stuff about the series and it's like, oh, twelve trades. Then I look in my comicsology, I'm like, I have ten trades. Well, the, yeah, there, there's only ten trades in the, that collect the proper Sandman. Issues one through seventy-five. Yeah, so I, I don't know exactly what the other two trades are. Um, I'll figure okay. that out. I'll let you know because we'll get there. All right, but um, yeah, I, I know Sandman like backwards and forwards. Yeah. by this point, so it's it's been over a decade since I've read the whole thing because I read it all before we moved to Maine, and uh, I've been in Maine for th- this year. I'll actually, when we hit um, May, it'll be ten years that I've lived in Maine. Uh, so I know I finished it up before I moved by a little bit of time. So like I've already hit 10 years since I've read the whole series. I've read the first trade probably four or five times because I keep on trying to restart the series. Um, 
I've probably read the second trade a time or two, maybe the third trade a time or two, but like I've never got, I've never stuck through the whole thing. Um, I haven't gotten super deep. But one of the things that really strikes me about it too is like reading the first trade again, even though that's one that I've read over and over, it's still so good to me. Like I still enjoy the process of reading it, even though like I remember the first trade very well. Um, that's the only one that like without having looked at anything again, I could tell you all the beats of the story. Um, and there weren't really any surprises, probably a few details that, um, that I didn't know about before. Like, uh, uh, Mr. Miracle is in it. Yep. And I didn't know who Mr. Miracle was when I read it. Cause they don't also, they don't call him Mr. Miracle. They call him Scott free. So like, I didn't know that. And I wouldn't have known that if I didn't read Tom King's, uh, and Mitch Garad's Mr. Miracle series. Ah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's where I started with Sandman. I got really into it. I read the whole thing. Um, at that time, I read, I was trying to find stuff that wasn't superhero stuff, like I said. So, like, I read, like, V for Vendetta. I, I definitely dipped a lot into Alan Moore because, um, that's Watchmen. where you go for, yeah. uh, I dipped a lot into Neil Gaiman. So, so like, you know, the my, kind of my two starting points, like, I, I veered off into other stuff by them. I know I read, the, like, the one superhero thing I read, and, and I read it because, like, I knew it had more critical, uh, appeal was, uh, Dark Knight. Uh, Frank Miller's stuff. Um, I think I actually read the second one first. And I was like, what the hell is this? And I read the first one. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and then we got ready to move to Maine. I stopped reading comics again. I gave, uh, I had somebody that I worked with that that loved Sandman, big Sandman fan. But they're, they had all the trades and they were stolen. So I said, hey, if you buy the last two so I could read them, I'll give you all the other ones I have. So they did that. They bought the last two trades. I gave them all the ones I had read those two, gave them back to them. And so now they had the whole collection. Um, we moved to Maine and after a while of living in Maine, like I just, I couldn't read the same that I had before work was really stressful. Uh, so I just like, I couldn't focus and looking back now I can see there probably a lot of the, uh, the health problems that now I clearly see what I've gone through. Like I didn't know I was going through them then, but they were a factor in how I I was, uh, doing with everything. Uh, I started reading comics again then. So, but I didn't, you know, it's like Sandman had come and gone by then. I was, that's why I started reading Batman and kind of the rest is history. So Sandman is that, that middle stage where I was like, I'm not a comic reader, but I'm reading comics. Gotcha. And okay. really love Sandman. And then it's just always like, uh, that's always stuck with me as one of my favorite things. And there's a lot of other things that I, when I read them, I was like, oh man, this is the best. I love this. And then I try to read it again. I'm like. All right, it was a good read, but it definitely like doesn't deserve my living my whole life saying it's one of the best things ever. And Sandman is not that. Like Sandman, every time I touch back on it, still holds up uh, just as strong. Yeah. So for me, Sandman was something I was always aware of. When I was a a kid reading comics, I started out with G.I. Joe and then X-Men and Wolverine and stuff like that, and then Valiant. But eventually, I started to get tired of superheroes. And I think it was because I realized my favorite Valiant title was Solar, Man of the Atom. Mm. And I started to realize that my favorite parts of the story weren't where when he was fighting villains, but when he was just a man trying to deal with having these big powers and what had happened to him and more of the kind of human story type aspects of this. So I started to look for, well, what else is out there? 
And in comic shops, it's very obvious that, okay, Sandman is not superheroes, and it's also a big popular title right now. That is just kind of easy to see by going into comic shops because of posters and ads or whatever, you know, that I, I would come across. So I started to pick up Sandman. And I was I was so young that my parents had to come into the comic store and tell the people that work there that, yes, you, like, m my son has permission to buy this book. <laughs> I will allow it. <laughs> um, because I was probably like 12 years old or something like that, 12 or 13. And at times, Sandman is definitely not for 12-year-olds. Yeah, probably. I mean, just in the, that first trade, there's quite a bit of stuff that is way too heavy for a 12 year old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was, it was right around the time of brief lives. It was in the brief lives story. And I read it through the brief lives and then the world's end story that came right after, which was basically a bunch of short stories. And I kind of lost interest in, in comics in general at that time, because like, punk rock became much more important to me <laughs> than comics when I was around 14 or so. So I was, I was always aware of Sandman as a, uh, you know, quote unquote, very good thing in comics. So when I started buying comics again, around 2000, that was one of the first things that I went back and collected all of and read because I knew, hey, this was something that I used to have, but I had only read like about a quarter of the overall uh, series, maybe like even like a fifth of it or something like that. So I got the entire thing and for the first time actually read through the entire Sandman story. And I, I loved it. I've owned it, the individual issues. I've owned the trade paperbacks. I still have all the first printing hardcovers. And I also have all the absolute editions. And so it's, it's a story that has very much resonated with me. And I think the reason why is it's it's a story where there's enough to it that it allows you as the reader to find your own meaning in it and that it it's big enough and complex enough that there are different things that you can find in it as a reading and that as a reader and that's what I found is that each time I read it, I feel like it means something a little bit different to me. Yeah. Or I notice something different about it to me. And I really, really like that because of it. Yeah. I, I mean, that that's right on the, there's so many characters in it and the characters are so enjoyable, but then also like, as you change as a person, you can relate to different things. Like, I mean, we'll get more in depth on the, the first trade here in a minute, but um, the the diner scene with Dr. D, um, you have a lot of different people that are in very different stages of their lives, you know, preparing for or dealing with different things that there's a lot of different things you can relate to or also be like uh, object to. And it's just such a good example where there's so many different ways that you can emotionally engage with uh, with that portion of the story. And we'll, we'll dig more into that in a second, like I said. But, um, I mean, all throughout, like, you have all the different uh, endless characters that are very different that you can enjoy or relate to differently. Like, it definitely isn't like you either like Sandman, you know, Morpheus, or you don't. And if you don't like him, you probably don't like the series. Like, no, you could actually hate 
Morpheus and probably really enjoy the series. Um, I mean, just in the first trade, once again, you get to the end of it and his sister is yelling at him and like you could be on on her side of that conversation, you know, very easily and enjoy her presence throughout the book, uh, even if she's not like the main character. Um, but yeah, just, I mean, there's, there's so much depth to it. I mean, right from the beginning, like you look at this first part of the story and there's just so, I mean, for eight issues though, that is some busy eight issues, but you don't ever feel like anything was rushed. You also don't feel like anything took too long. Like reading through, there were parts of it that I expected to be a lot longer that weren't, that were a lot more concise than what I remembered. Cause it's just like the details are, are in there so well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to continuing to go through this. Um, and you know, like I said, for me to have reread this first trade so much says something to start with for me. But for me to have read it this time and to have enjoyed it, and I feel like honestly, I enjoyed it better now than I could have any other time, except probably the first time I read it, where it was just totally new and exciting. Cool. Yeah, like I, I I've said this before, but I, I went through a long stretch of life where with health problems and other stuff, like I, I didn't have the mental clarity to fully enjoy a lot of things. And like, I feel like I really have that now. So like, I'm looking at this book a lot clearer than I've been able to, even with having reread it. So shall we start with the beginning? I love the beginning. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. I think the the first issue for me is kind of it, it feels more like the traditional horror comics that were being made at the time and looking at stuff like what Alan Moore was doing in Swamp Thing and what was going on in uh, like Hellblazer stuff like that it seemed like it was very much trying to be in that tradition more than anything else I like I I noticed the the artwork is very stylized at times like there's a lot of art nouveau type layouts and stuff like that to kind of give it this gothic haunting feel to it yep um, that kind of falls away fairly quickly in the series as it starts to really f- go take the direction that the series more so takes uh, over time it's a a good just standalone story to me like you could give me that and have that like that could stand alone as just in like a horror anthology of here's a single standalone issue of a horror book and it would hold up uh, as that in its own way yeah I love so I mean you, you go through that first story and you get like no glimpses into Morpheus's character right like he's just there and present. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's he's kind of the monster. Yeah, in a way, he's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, really, the the people are the real monster here. But um. well, yeah, <laughs> that's what I, that's what I was about to say. But then you find out, yeah, that he's not the monster at all. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, you, you the the way they started it, just feeling like a horror story was great because like the it it was a horror story. You have these people playing with powers that they don't know. You have these people that their their greed is um is you know quite evident and they don't eat, they don't know what they're messing with and of course you get the glimpses into other people's lives and see how you know their greed is has destroyed other people and all the while like Morpheus is this thing I don't even know if we knew his name at that point like they they reveal after a little bit that he is a uh, dream and not death. Yeah, because um, they were trying to capture death, but he's just he's trapped. But the one thing that I really love about it too is the whole time 
he's he never acts fearful. Uh, he never acts like he's never trying to like you know uh, negotiate his way out. He is a stubborn deity that knows his power. He knows he's trapped at the moment, but he knows that these mortals are going to screw up. He waits through two generations to do it. And when they make their mistake, he's ready. He knows exactly what he has to do. Uh, and the the patience he shows and then the the thoroughness and preciseness with which he executes what his powers are and what he can do it's just it's so great like it um in in any kind of story in sports in anything when you see somebody that is um is oh, what's the word like there's a word that like I'm listening. highly competent yeah like they they're they're somebody that executes like well that's what makes wolverine great when he is he's the best at what he is and what he does isn't very nice right um, yeah mm-hmm. he's the best at what he is and when he has to do something nothing disrupts what he has to do like his emotions don't, his thoughts and fears don't. Like nothing does because he executes what needs to be done. It's like the beast is awakened, kind of yeah. thing. And that, that's and like it the stop now. It's the payoff with stories like that, with you know Wolverine stories, or I mean with GI Joe stories. Like GI Joe, there's a lot more that adds the flavor, but you always know that you, you're going to get the point of the story where they execute the mission, and when they do it, they're going to do it precisely, and that what's that's what makes them specialists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, action movies like that. That's like the basis of action movies, right? Like they're all somebody is a specialist that can operate through very unusual circumstances and, um, you know, come out the other side. They're the underdog, but because they can execute so well, they survive it. Right. So, yeah. Right. You know, right from the beginning of the story, you don't know what Morpheus is. And then when you get to see him, boy, does he execute like he just takes these guys down and the uh the the man who trapped him has died of old age uh his son is the one who has continued to keep morpheus trapped and everybody that helps him you see their lives fall apart because their greed set up other people's downfalls but somebody else's greed ends up costing them and throughout this they set up the next phase of the story which is where morpheus's uh three items which he has put a part of his himself into so his strength is dispersed uh, those things have been dispersed. So he had his helm that was uh, traded to a demon for uh, an amulet that offered protection to uh, to the one guy that screwed over the Sykes. Yeah, uh, he he screwed over the guy who had Morpheus captured. Yeah, Roderick Burgess. See, you're, you're the name guy. <laughs> I wrote down the names. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, you got to do all the names. I will never be good with names. So yeah, so Sykes steals from Burgess. Uh, trades the helm for the amulet that protects him. He still possesses the ruby. And then uh, the woman makes off with those two things. And as soon as he doesn't have the amulet, Burgess finally consents him and kill him from a distance with his black magic. Yeah, uh, the- that's a uh, interesting scene because one of the things that I think is interesting about this book is it like Roderick Burgess, he mentions Alistair Crowley early on, and it'll be like, finally, like, they'll take me seriously. And it, it comes from this tradition of magic kind of being mumbo jumbo, right? Mm-hmm. Just like weird rituals that weird dudes do wearing robes in the dark and stuff, except that it's actually real in this case, right? It, it establishes this fact that the magic that they do actually has some truth to it. It's not just this kind of 
phony baloney stuff of you know so-called magicians in in our real world like they're actually able to wage magical battles with each other yeah and and i think that's a kind of interesting thing that is established very early on yeah and the fallout from it is massive like uh it's easy to kind of forget the fallout as you go on but when you realize it like what happens with john d in the diner later uh is still fallout from from these actions you know, these people caused massive damage to a lot of people's lives with their their selfishness. Yeah. But yeah, so as this initial phase of the story breaks up, like you see the pieces disperse that are the next part of the story. So the helm goes to a demon. Um, the ruby is now in possession of this woman. Uh, and then the sand, I don't know if they clearly say what happened to the sand right then. It eventually, it, it went to... Uh... Uh, Hellblazer, John Constantine. Yeah, but they they don't like clearly say like the other two pieces is clear what happened. The helm, we know it like they show it being given to the demon. The the ruby goes with the woman. Uh, the sand is just kind of kind of lost in that moment. So we know that yeah, Sykes it looks took like the sand like also, right? Something. So yeah, it just kind of yeah. like gets it ends up with. I mean, he he's the woman's gone. He's killed. So there's all this stuff. So what do you do when somebody and you have no links to anybody to like get their stuff to? Like it goes in storage, it ends up going in an auction or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what happens with the sand basically. So Morpheus gets out. Like he's waiting for his opportunity. He's in a, a gla- he's sealed in glass, and he also has like the the magic circle around him, right? So yeah. he's, he waits, he waits, he waits, you know, and um, uh, Burgess, which is the son of the first Burgess who who captured him, is an old man. He's in a wheelchair. He waits for the opportunity where he's there yelling at him again because he won't give him what he wants. Shows that people really don't learn this like 60 years later and like he still think you could just yell at people, make them give you what you want. Um, yeah. And then when they turn his wheelchair around, it breaks the line in the sand. So he knows that uh, he now can use his powers once he's out of the glass. Yeah, it's like finally the circle and, and they explain it really well that the the glass container holds his physical form and the magical circle that they etched in the ground or laid in the ground in sand or whatever it is holds him magically in place. It holds his like uh incorporeal form uh right there on, on the mortal plane. And so this kind of they're getting old and careless about it is what allows them finally the the circle is is broken by the wheelchair and it it gives him his moment. And that's something that I noticed this time reading through is it's a pretty subtle visual thing that is indicated in the book. And if without carefully looking at it, it would be easy to miss that sort of thing that that kind of key story beat is only told visually no one ever mentions it or anything because it's not like morpheus says ah he has disturbed the circle with his wheelchair and now my powers can be freed you know there's none of that it uh it forces me to look at things carefully to understand that yeah yeah it's it really says a lot about the strength of, of the storytelling in sandman that it's it's not that you know older era of comics where literally everything is described and spelled out for you. It's not the newer era of comics where like you can read a story in two minutes because it's so much visual and so little words. Um, Mm -hmm. And plus like stories have become more and more decompressed. 
Like I said, this story is very compressed, but without ever feeling compressed. There's a lot going on. So it's great because it, it um it's it it really is trying to uh make art instead of making something that's just, you know, easily palatable, you know? Yeah. Uh but yeah, so he the the circle's broken. So he goes into the dreams of the guys that fall asleep, grabs some sand. That's his sand, so that way he can uh you know use his powers. And then he collapses like he's dead. So they, they come and they disturb the glass, not realizing that he, his powers were already freed. So as soon as they move the glass, he throws the sand and he's he's in control. He's free. You know, he, he throws the sand, knocks them out, is in control of their dreams, does all the stuff he needs to do, gets his revenge on Burgess. What do you think of that revenge? Because it's one of those things where it's, I feel much more impactful the first time I read it than any other times I read it. Uh, because, you know, it's it, a lot of it relies on that element of surprise about what's going on, that eternal waking uh, torment. I, th- that I think that it, uh, it sets the tone for, for the whole series for what real torment is. Death is easy. You know, and, mm-hmm. you know, like we, when we want our revenge, like we want to see, you know, uh, the action hero shoot up the bad guys and it's done. You know, we want that finality. And one thing throughout Sandman, especially, I mean, with, uh, with all the beings that are in his dominion, like, I mean, death isn't really a factor for them, but like he can uncreate them, but that's uncreating them isn't a punishment for them because they're just uncreated there. There's no, no essence of them anymore. So of course they fear it because they don't want to not exist, but once they don't exist, they don't exist. You know, it's so like if he's really going to punish somebody, then that like that never ending wake wakening is way more fe- fearful than an old man just dying. Yeah, he's almost dead anyways. It's one of those things you got to think about it a little bit. It, it doesn't have that like satisfying like I blew your head up um, like, you know, Burgess does decide. Like Scott. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's. You know, in some ways, it, way worse. Yeah, d- death is the mercy. Like we see in uh, in the next segment of the story when he starts to go to recover his things so he can reclaim his power. The first thing he goes to find, well, I guess we're skipping ahead a little bit, but the first thing he goes to find is the sand, and that ends with a merciful death. Um, so yeah. we'll we'll put that on hold for a second because the next stage of the story is him going back to his realm, and he has so little power that um, before we get there, though, okay, I want to mention. Uh, about that ending i think it shows how merciless sandman is also at the beginning of this story yeah he's he's someone who's kind of like yeah you know i i I gave this guy you nightmares eternal nightmares for the rest of his life what's the big deal like yeah he deserved it no big deal like yeah his his life is is ruined and he is going to be eternal torment from now on yeah no big deal It, it shows the type of character he is at the beginning of this story. Yeah. I think it goes back to the Wolverine yeah. thing too, a little bit. Uh, I'm the best there is at what I do, but what I do isn't very nice. He's, he's in control of his dominion very much. So, and when he has to punish somebody, he's not messing around there. There's no mercy. Um, and I think, uh, you know, being a ruler, especially of a, you know, a, a d- dimension like his is, you have to set examples because people are always going to try to come after your power. So, uh, like, you know, there's a balance between the, you know, 
like I'm playing uh, Ghost of Tsushima right now. So the Mongols have invaded my island in Japan, and uh, their tactics are very, um, you know, very violent. So if you did, wait, did did they like ride their horses over the water? Well, no, they get there on boats. <laughs> but um, oh, okay, <laughs> all right. So like, I just hit this one part in the game where they're trying to capture the you know, the Mongols were trying to capture these monks and they're just being portrayed in story. It's being what's told because like, obviously we're not seeing what the Mongols are doing. We're fighting against it. Um, but there were some monks, the Mongols were trying to capture. They went peacefully. So there was no violence. They left the village. If there's any resistance, they kill everybody, burn the village down. So very extreme, you know? Um, and eventually, I mean, they're going to come back and kill anybody anyways, because it, you know, you, but you present that if you do what I want, Everything will be okay, but if you don't, then everything is destroyed. Like that is like the extreme to be, and that's not being a good leader, of course. And like obviously, the Mongols aren't trying to lead the Japanese uh, in this case. But um, what Sandman does is not that. It's you know people need to behave the proper way. But if your offense is great, it doesn't matter if you repent. Like the punishment's going to happen, and. You know, him doing what he did to, to Burgess, like, obviously, like, the average human being isn't going to know what happened. So, like, if an average human comes along and tries to do that, they're not they're not even going to know. But, like, he's setting that example. He, he has to showcase his power. Because, I mean, look at the trials he goes through after this. He knows he doesn't have his power, but he is relying on his reputation to to instill the fear he needs to use the power he has to overcome the adversity. Yeah. So it's like the, I, part of being a good leader is uh, delivering punishment even when forgiveness is sought, you know, because you have yeah, to maintain I, the power. I don't know. I think it also kind of shows because you in a larger scale picture about what Sandman is about. In some ways, it's about Morpheus's inability to change when he needs to and his inability to completely grow to be more human in terms of like things like compassion and understanding. And, uh, he, it's like, he, he learns a lot along the way, but he isn't able to completely get there. And I think that this showcases just how unhuman, uncaring, uncompassionate he is at the beginning of this story. And I think that that is, they kind of double down with that, with the whole Nada Nadia story. Yep. Uh, coming up, a I was going to point that out too. Well. Yeah, um, but mm-hmm. I think it just goes to show he's not human. We want to fit him into human because that's how we relate. So we want we want to like him. We want him to be human. We want to see the traits that we want to see in ourselves in him. And I think stories like this are good in that regards because he is not. And then we juxtapose ourselves to him, and we can understand why he is how he is to whatever extent we can. Um, but it also goes to strengthen or should go to strengthen our feelings towards how people should be treated. So he doesn't have any reason to show mercy, but we can see his actions and go like, if I, if I were in that position, I think I would show mercy because that's the right thing to do. And it's still like, is um, it draws out those traits that, that are good and makes us think about them and challenges them. And it also like it, it sets up the the barrier between he's not human, he's he doesn't want to, need to, or have to be human, and um, that's why like him doing what he did to Burgess 
even in the end, like he he doesn't get any satisfaction out of it, and we see his melancholy. But it's not something for him to fret. Like why why should he care? Like when you really think about it, like humans are kind of uh, kind of beneath him. Like he he's something beyond humans. So at the same time, like did, were his actions appropriate for his role? You know, like uh, sure, yeah, I get it. In yeah. uh, in in the Avengers movie, you know. Loki says humans are ants and, you know, uh, you don't think about crushing an ant under your boot. It just doesn't matter, you know, but then Thor is also a god and sees that while, you know, there may be actions that are necessary, like just blatantly crushing those weaker than you is also not the right way for a god to behave, you know, lots of dynamic, lots going on here. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I've rambled my way off of the (laughs) the central line. (laughs) Good, good ramble. <laughs> so uh, getting to the next issue, I think the thing that stood out to me the most in this second issue is how much nothing really happens in the second issue in terms of like plot and stuff. It's not like the first issue where there is very much a set. Here's the story about magicians that captured this wild fantasy creature and then his revenge on them as he escapes. Like that's very much like a plot of issue one. But issue two, it's kind of like the plot is, well, Dream goes back to his dream world and we see some other characters and he kind of just kind of hangs out and gets ready to do stuff. Yeah, I love that issue, though. You start to see the world of Dream, which is, a, like, I mean, that that's what makes Sandman a series that could go on for 75 issues. Like, there's so much to explore. So you're seeing the stuff that we don't know. And that's really the only taste that we get of it is that one issue. You don't you don't get to spend any more time in Dream in this first trade. No, not until really the Dream battle later between him and Doctor D. Yeah, I, I think what I what I stood out to me about it is that that idea that and you could take an issue of your comic book and not really have it be about much. Like you could take this even the second issue. And not have it be about much is a very Sandman idea, I think, in a comic. And it flies against what was, I think, the convention in comics at the time that, you know, your your comic needs to tell a story. And it needs to be, like, each issue needs to be, like, a kind of full, complete plot. And that that's what periodical comics are as full complete plots sometimes they are two partners that continue to the next issue but generally they tend to be a full type of story and this really flies in the face of that and really hits on that aspect of sandman that some issues aren't going to be about much they're going to be more about mood and setting and developments rather than about plot and I think that that is really cool that almost right away, as of the second issue, that nature of this series is being established. Yeah, and the second issue does a lot to um, to show you more of the character of Morpheus, and it sets the tone that, you know, I mean, you see his, his land is falling apart, but the, the characters that he interacts with um, have, like, total fealty to him, uh, even when they're, like... Um, Cain doesn't want to give up the thing that Morpheus gave him that has some of his power in it, but Abel very quickly says, yes, here's mine and Morpheus, and uh, Cain has his too. Um, mm-hmm. Like, they they revere him. They fear him. Like, they, they fully see his power, which goes back to what I was saying about, like, his punishment to Burgess. Like, the tone is set that, you know, 
he's going to treat you right, but also you don't mess with him, basically, you know? Yeah, um, that he is absolute monarch in his land. Yeah, and it's kind of getting that taste of uh, of of the, the land of dream is, is pretty cool. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but yeah, not much else happens in issue two issue three. If I remember correctly is the one, uh, where he goes after his sand, right? Yeah. It's the pouch. Yeah. Issue. So you get John Constantine in it, so you get more tie into the DC universe, which after this first trade, we see little to know of after, mm-hmm. um, but that, that was definitely a cool issue. Um, so, long story short, John Constantine acquired the sand, knew that there was something fishy about it. Uh, his girlfriend at the time, who was a junkie, um, wanted to uh, do whatever this weird drug was. And um, the issue, I believe, kind of starts off showing her in this, like, catatonic sort of state where she's just been, you know, doing the drug that is the the sand that brings dreams. So, she's, like, she's killing herself with dreams, um, yes. overindulging. Mm-hmm. Uh it's a it's a a cool issue in that like so even something like dream that you just think of as benign like when you just purely indulge yourself in something it's bad for you and like it shows how bad and when they go to the house um it's creepy bad like there's uh, a room that is covered with like the exploded human material <laughs> of the girl's yeah. dad or something like that um, yeah something like yeah and you know they go to the next room which is the last one like before getting into the girl and this just like element of dream is all over the room it's like the um this like filmy byproduct of dream is there and like you know uh trying to run them off and threatening them and whatever this thing all over this room is when morpheus steps up even once again in his weaker state they know he's the boss they fear him and they they oblige his commands immediately. So they, they go in the room, find this woman who is, you know, pretty much dead. Morpheus is ready to just grab his sand and go. And this goes back to the, you know, uh, the mercy or not. Um, he's just going to go. Constantine is like, you have to do something about this. I mean, what does it mean to Morpheus that this, this woman who essentially stole something that was his and then abused it is going to die a horrible death. Yeah, he, he he just he doesn't even think about yeah. it until it, Constantine brings it exactly. up. Exactly. It's no consequence to him. She deserves it. She completely deserves it. So and this is where like, you know, with Burgess you could say like, is this a good trait or a bad trait? Um well now here here's somebody like he has no reason to do anything. And all it takes is like one prompting from somebody who's helped them and he goes like, Okay, you know, like she may deserve this yeah. death, but there's also a big difference uh, in his role in this. He can show this mercy without it showing any weakness in him. He can't show mercy to Burgess uh, without being weak, saying like, okay, you've trapped me for 60 years, and I'm just going to let you off scot-free now, you know? Who will see later. Yeah, I think he also sees that it's not that he, this lady didn't steal the pouch. She just came across it after it was already stolen from. Oh, her. she stole it from Constantine. It, oh, sure, <laughs> but yeah, not from but, him. I yeah. mean, and, I mean, it was already stolen. Yeah, but, it was but, more of a, a coincidental thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the the people that that she when she stole it from Constantine, she wasn't doing any slight against Morpheus. Yeah, at that time, because the slight against Morpheus was him being captured and uh, his the pouch being stolen in the first place by by Burgess. Yeah. 
So we get we get that he has his pouch back. Um, so he has a little bit of his power back, and the next place he goes is to hell. Is there anything to wrap up on with the the pouch episode? Well, what what I want to mention is I I feel like this is it hits on one of the um, big themes of the entire series, which is way that ways that dreams and stories can impact people's lives for either for the better or for the worse. And I think that this first arc is in many ways about how stories and dreams impact people for the worse. And we'll get some of the for the better, I think, later on. But this is very much a, you know, overindulging in dreams and stories has led this person's life to be ruined. And so I think that there's kind of a, a little bit of symbolism in that idea that overindulgence in stories and ignoring the real real world to only indulge in stories and fantasies and dreams isn't exactly healthy. And I think that this is kind of a, a an extreme example to to point that out. Yeah. And just I, I think it it very again very early shows that this series is about the ways that dreams and stories interact with people's lives, and you know in in a way I feel like Sandman is in many ways like a story about stories that is just very clear and on display here right a, again like in the third issue. So I think I I always thought that this first arc seemed very out of place with the rest of the story with the rest of the series in that it seems very different like a different type of story than the rest of the series is because it's very much like a Morpheus is the main character and he's going on a quest to find all these things which is very different I think from the rest of the series because even later when he does go on a quest he's much more passive about it and the rest of the series seems to be more about the ways that Morpheus incidentally impacts people's lives and uh, I think that what I'm noticing on this read through is how much of what is later in the series uh, and and what the series really becomes is actually here and established and on display like very early on in this in this uh, this collection. Yeah, I feel like this this first story in this collection is opening the door into the world that we're going to be in the rest of the time. It's like uh, the movie Willy Wonka. There's a story that feels completely different than the rest of the story leading up to how Charlie gets in the chocolate factory. But once they open that door into the chocolate factory. You're, you're in this world of pure imagination. Exactly. And that's yeah. like what this is, you know, like issue two, like we said that not a lot happened, but that's your first glimpse inside the chocolate factory, inside the world of dream. And the rest of the story is like heavily in the world. I mean, even if it's not in the world of dream, like the world of dream is back to what it was. So even when it goes into the real world or whatever, like it's based in a different place than where it is right now. So right now we're just getting the door being open. Yeah. Um, all right, let's yeah. go to hell. So I think we need to accelerate a little bit. So we'll speak. I mean, we did a lot of the talking points anyway. So we go to hell. Um, this is where uh, Morpheus definitely has to use his reputation because he knows that his power is weak and that he's in a dangerous place. Um, and he's operating on reputation, uh, being treated the, the way that he should as a as a monarch of, of his sort. 
Um, so he goes there, and we find that Hell is in turmoil, and uh, there are currently three leaders of Hell, uh, Lucifer, Beelzebub, and um, I forget who the other guy is. Azazel. As, I think Azazel. Yeah. Or Azrael or something. A lot of the, uh, a lot of the demons feel like just so, like, cheesy 90s cool. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Um, which yeah. I think is a, is a lot of the the visual tone of the whole series. Um, but uh, yeah, so essentially he goes there, says, "Hey, one of your demons has my helm. I want it back." Um, the demon came about possession of the helm properly, so they say basically this is his. Uh, and Morpheus challenges him to regain it. And the the bet with the challenge is, if I win, I get my helm back. If you win, I'm your servant. So, no big surprise, Morpheus wins. Uh, And then the demon who loses for losing is uh, now going to be punished in hell. So, his loss actually wasn't just... Hell, hell. (laughs) Yeah, he didn't just lose the helm. Um, He also now is out of favor with the the leaders of hell. Because how dare you, you know, not beat this other powerful being. Um, Yeah. And at the end of it, all the demons are around, and Morpheus is like, all right, thanks, I'll be on my way. And uh, the three leaders of Hell are like, yeah, good luck getting out of here. And then Morpheus basically calls him out and says, uh, what good is Hell without a dream of heaven? So if all the people you're tormenting here can't dream of something better, what good does it do you? Like, you know, what? Yeah. And so, like, they let him walk out. So he, he calls their bluff right there. Uh, and it's like, definitely one thing I like in all of Sandman is there's a lot of uh, wittiness. And not just for the sake of being witty, but, um, like, the points that are made aren't just, like, uh, I want to serve this purpose. What, what thing can I do that will seem witty? Like, it's a lot more constructed and purposeful in how it's done. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. Like what I was almost going to say the same thing. Like this story seems like it's taking that phrase a hope in hell and like coming up with a witty idea of turning that into the story but then actually thinking it through and taking it to its all its conclusions to the point where it's actually a a meaningful impactful story. Yeah. So yeah, it like it's it's a really good meaningful story that seems based on basically just a little witty thought <laughs> about a, a funny saying. And uh, I think that's kind of interesting about yeah. it. Um, then we go on to the next stage of the story. He's going to get his Ruby back and it turns out uh, Dr. Destiny John D has it. His mom was, uh, was the lady who stole it from Sykes and caused his head to get exploded. Uh, that isn't explicitly said, but um, I think it's pretty clear that that's the case. So there's like pieces, yeah. being, you know, interwoven together more. Uh, John D is an Arkham, so you get to see some other Arkham type of things. Um, I actually like the way that um, that Scarecrow is used and how he misses Joker because Joker's not there to you know to make his jokes. Um, so he's trying to make his joke by pretending he's hung himself, and then he tells Doctor D that there's a he set up another joke in the other room and. Dr. D goes in there as a a guard who is dead and has a kick me sign on his back. I just love that John D goes, yes, that's very funny. And then goes on his way. (laughs) You know, one thing that I noticed in this read through is how much, uh, Dr. Destiny is really set up as kind of the main villain of this first collection. Yeah. 
and he's he's first mentioned in the second issue when his mother comes to see him and in in Arkham and we get to see how kind of crazy and messed up he is and it it's really kind of this slight running theme in the background until these three issues where his story really becomes the foreground yeah, and of what all of like what all of this is is leading yeah, to yeah and his story is the one that sets the tone for the sick twisted horror that you know goes on to be a bigger part of the series like like you said the first part feels like more gothic horror then we get it i mean his story is pretty twisted um so oh, yeah. he, he escapes, uh, he uh, makes somebody give him a ride at gunpoint. Throughout it, like, he's acting decently. She starts to have some sympathy for him. And in the end, he shoots her and kills her because, you know, we talked about a uh, lack of compassion. So he has a lack of compassion, but his lack of compassion isn't any kind of justness. It's just he wants to cause destruction and mayhem for everybody and that's his end goal yeah, is to, to like his first goal is to destroy the world to the point where they beg him to be their leader and their king and as he does it he just realizes that he just en- enjoys destroying people yeah that this this fifth issue is another one where not a ton happens it's basically just dr destiny and morpheus working their way closer and closer to the ruby mm-hmm. You know, that's that's basically what's going on. And Morpheus has some funny interactions with some Justice League members on the way, which is, I think, this is close to the end of the idea that Sandman takes place in the same universe as the rest of the DC universe. Mm-hmm. Um, they they kind of got that out of the way quickly. I What I imagine is that the series was pitched as about Sandman kind of floating around on the periphery of the DC universe, but then that was quickly abandoned as they realized, oh, wait, no, just the just the story of Sandman is is way better. Yeah, you don't need to to dilute it by tying it down to things. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As you get that issue, they work towards the the Ruby. Uh Morpheus tries to take it, but because of what John D has done to it, uh he can't and it actually saps more power from him. Um, John D shows up, finds it, leaves Morpheus there. I'm assuming he just assumes he's dead, doesn't really realize who or what he is, um, and goes to this diner. And then he walks into the yeah, diner. and then you and, get the yeah. whole issue of the diner where you see all these different characters that you get some connection to. You have some sympathy for them. But as it goes on, like, one, you start to see the dark side of these different characters. I don't think there's anybody in it that is um, purely innocent, like the one guy that pr- that they don't really show anything too negative about is the guy who's just waiting for a job interview. But everybody else, like yeah, they got some pretty uh-huh. uh, some pretty nasty secrets behind them, and those secrets get unveiled more and more as they get warped and twisted. But John D, man, that is a sick issue because he is just screwing with them. Um, one of the I think the most poignant parts of it is he does all this nasty, sick stuff to them, and then he gives them their minds back for a bit, and like that's the part where you realize just how screwed up it is i think that this is one of the like this this is the issue i remember the most from this collection i think that this is probably that most poignant issue and it is one of the most truly horrific of i think the entire series like the only thing that i think comes close to this in terms of horrificness is the serial 
uh, convention yeah. <laughs> that we'll get to. <laughs> those, I think, with with volume. Those are two. probably the two parts of the whole run that that like have stood out the most clearly to me over all this time since I've read it. I also have reread through the serial convention at least one time since my first read through. So I mean, there is some more reason why I remember it, but um, yeah, I mean, they're they're quite twisted. Um, and this one, like, not only does John Dee do all the twisted stuff or make them do twisted stuff, um, that's pretty pretty awful. But um, you also get glimpses with pretty much everybody of how delusional they are themselves to their reality. Like the the waitress seems all sweet and nice at first. She thinks she's a writer. But you start to see how she deludes herself to think that there's something more significant to her. But also that her biases and stuff are proper. And her solution to her biases is to imagine everybody that she looks down on because of her biases as... Um, well, I'm just gonna, you know, make their story good for them, you know, and that that's her whole thing. And like, she's, she's a, you know, pretty skeezy person with how she looks at people. Yeah. And like one thing I really stuck out to me, they, there's a, uh, like a kind of bigger fat guy with his wife who seems a little older and the waitress is like, Oh, they're so in love with each other. It's wonderful. But then later we see a scene where their like dreams are coming to life, and his dream is like being in a Lamborghini uh, with a, a cheap twenty dollar hooker, and her dream is cutting off his head yeah. to keep him from ever being unfaithful. And so, like the waitress's bead on people is very oversimplistic. Is I think one thing we find. Yeah, and, and she isn't as much a observer of humans as she thinks she is yeah she she's twisting everything to fit like her her picture of what is good and so she's not seeing any of the bad and some of the things that are fine with people just being themselves she sees those things as bad uh there's the um the lesbian girl in it who she looks down on her for you know being in an unnatural relationship with that other girl um but i mean that's that there's nothing wrong with that but she's being judgmental yeah, of that. It's her, that's ignores, her bias yeah. is thinking that the, yeah. the married couple, well, everything's great there because it's a man and a woman. They're married and that's how things should be. And in reality, the, the man is using the woman for her money, cheating on her. The woman just wants to kill him because she knows she's like, you know, she, she knows this. So there's like everything good. She sees there is false. But then, you know, once again, like the, almost none, none of the characters are redeemable in this bar, um, other than just the fact of recognizing that they're human, um, even the girl, like as uh, like you feel bad for her because she's upset because of uh, you know probable breakup in her relationship, and then as it goes on, she's writing a note. You find out that it's because she was hitting her partner, um, yeah. and so you see mm-hmm. that this is actually an abusive relationship. So your first instinct is to have sympathy for the abusive member of the relationship and then as it's unveiled you realize that there's always more than meets the eye you know so long story short through all this they all end up dead and at the end of that issue of a lot of just like twisted torment that shows you how awful dr destiny is morpheus shows up and that goes into the next issue where they're battling over possession of the uh the ruby and this i think is maybe my favorite issue of this arc is the the battle they have in dreams and i love how the the dream world is portrayed in this and this is one where i think the the images do a lot of heavy lifting to just show how 
weird and always shifting and strange the dream world is and to really show that off plus i i just i love the very end of the battle and how it resolves yeah as well just visually it's it's one of those things that is so striking to me where he he thinks he's destroyed morpheus and it just shows these all white panels where he thinks that the dream he has destroyed everything everything's gone and he's victorious but then he he finds out that by doing that actually what he did is he released morpheus's power and this giant whiteness of nothing around him is actually him being a, a tiny tiny person in morpheus's hand who's now realized all his full power has come back to him yep. Yeah, that, I love the ending of that. And then, um, you know, once again, we go back to the, you know, theme of, you know, mercy or proper punishment. He takes John D. back to Arkham and, uh, you know, he has mercy on everybody. He sees the torment that the, the Ruby wrought on John D. Um, and basically, like, the, uh, there's he's 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 impotent at that point. You know, there, there's no more threat from John D. He's broken. So it's like, why do anything other than take him back to Arkham? Once again, like, death is no real punishment. He doesn't even know what, like, John D. wouldn't even know that, like, he's not even afraid of death. Like, there's there's just nothing there to it, you know? So he just takes him back to Arkham, and he gives everybody a peaceful night's sleep after all this torment. So I think, you know, that's yeah. one where, like, closing the door on that section isn't, okay, somebody needs to pay a consequence for this everybody's already kind of paid the consequence. And now it's like, let's just like salve over all the pain and give people some peace and, and, you know, move on to the next step. Um, and it's like, he's growing and his need for revenge for things is diminishing. Yeah. The, you know, as, as it goes, the through. more powerful you are, the less you need to have acts to exert your power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we go into the final issue of this collection, which, uh, is a great one, a very different issue from what we've seen so far and we get to meet death and uh, we get to see morpheus interact with one of his siblings um we get to see what death does is morpheus tags along with her for the day on a you know grim reaper ride along um and we see how it basically helps him get back in touch with who he is and what his actual duty is because he's been so focused on this this quest to reclaim all these items throughout this arc and now that's done and he feels kind of like well i feel lost now and she really reminds him wait no you you have so much to do besides that like all the things that you're supposed to do you just if if that had never happened, what were you supposed to be doing? And this helps him, I think, get back in touch with that yeah. a little bit. That Yeah, he, he does have a purpose. And just because he has finished this immediate purpose in his life doesn't mean that that greater purpose doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And you you see, like, I, I love the part where, like, he calls it out right away. Uh, well, I mean, not right away, but he, he calls it out clearly that everybody is so afraid of death and so resistant, but death herself is very compassionate and kind. And he says himself that, you know, he comments on that, that everybody is afraid of her, but he is by far the more fearsome one. Uh, and everybody has, you know, you have these connotate, you know, these uh, like preconceived notions um, and, you know, dream everybody thinks of as this positive, beautiful thing because, 
all people think about with dream is the good dreams they want to have. Everybody's afraid of death because they fear it. They don't know what it is. Uh, they don't know what comes after. But then, like, we see death in action as being the kind and compassionate one. Because in her role, she's, that's what she's able to be. You know, whereas Dream has a lot of other functions he has to do. So it's a great transition issue to, you know, okay, now we're... It's not just the continuing adventures of Dream on his quest. It's going to be something totally different. And we get this first glimpse of... Um, the the greater world of the endless and there are these other roles and functions and characters that we're going to see over time and you know like you said that his battle with john d was in dream but we didn't see the world of dream it just like it took place in like the ethereal concept of dream yeah uh-huh so there's we we didn't really see like the larger mythology yeah of of the the dreaming and all of that really come into play. It was more, yeah, exactly. It was more of the, in the, in the concept of being in a dream than it was about, yeah, exactly. The I guess I would say the mythology of this series. Yeah, and that that's what gives the series so much legs is the mythology. There's so much fun stuff to explore there. And that's just like one thing to explore. We've already seen like uh, how much we can explore in such a short time of different concepts and themes and stuff like that in this first trade. Um, and now it's like, okay, well, here's here's all this structure. Here's the ways we can do stuff. Now, here's this whole other world that you know nothing about. Go play in it, you know? This is another one of my probably favorite issues overall in the series. I think it's most everybody's. This is where I feel like the series really starts to find its voice in terms of what it's going to be rather than what it starts off as. And this really feels like a, a transition where, okay, We've gotten through this idea of this fetch quest where he's interacting with the DC universe. We're going to transition out of that and become something totally different. And I feel like this issue really is that transition to make that happen. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, now we've done it. We've uh, we've recapped the first trade of Sandman. I think this is the most thoroughly we've talked about anything. I know. Well, it's cool. I uh, maybe we should do it again for volume two. Someday. Yeah, you know, I think we'll continue through. Sand- and I, I don't think it'll take as much time to recap every trade of Sandman. Like this first one is just sure, like yeah. uh, opening up so many things. But yeah, this this was great. I, I look forward to continuing to read it and continue to talk about it. Um, I think it's kind of cool that we had uh, as we're starting to gain listeners, we have actually had people see our tweets and say, hey, you guys should talk about this. And we were like, tee-hee-hee, we already have once. And Uh-oh. they're not going to hear this final <laughs> yes. conversation. So they're going to hear the first one and be like, oh, this is good. And then they're going to discover there's a whole other episode of us going much more in-depth on it. So, yes. yeah. So let's wrap this sucker up. Oh, yeah. I like it. So you can find me on Twitter at Bad Deacon. You can find Paul on Twitter at Who's Paul. And Twitter is really the place where we uh, spend most of our online time. So we don't really mess around with the Facebooks or the Instagrams or any of that. So come and say hi to us on Twitter. And that is it. Yes. So. Yeah. We've wrapped up a lot of loose ends. Now we got to create some more loose ends for next time. All right. Sounds like a good plan. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.